welcome to the Think Factory podcast. We got one question for you. What keeps you up at night? Hello and welcome to the Women's Roundtable podcast powered by the Think Factory, where we learn how women think big and grow their business. My name is Susan Kleiner. I'm a partner with Outside General Counsel Solutions, and I'm the host of today's episode. I'm happy to have with me here today Molly Ashcroft. Molly is the Executive Director of Novo Detox. Molly has an extensive background working in the field of addiction treatment and recovery and is uniquely positioned to lead the Novo Detox staff as the premier provider of detox and medical stabilization services in the Mid-Atlantic area for those suffering from addiction, substance use disorder, and co-occurring disorders. Born and raised in Connecticut, Molly first found personal recovery from addiction before entering into the field of addiction treatment. Her career has spanned working with a nonprofit sober living and recovery house organization in New England, serving as the director of admissions and business development for extended care and structured sober living for young adult men in Westport, Connecticut. She has also worked with Maryland Addiction Recovery Center, a long-term extended care program, as well as an IOP provider in Towson, Maryland. Throughout her time in the addiction treatment field, Molly also has worked with clients independently as an interventionist and case manager. Molly now serves as the executive director of Anovo Detox in Aventown, Pennsylvania. Anovo opened its doors right as the COVID-19 global health pandemic was shutting down the country. Certainly not ideal, although the pandemic demonstrated how much this was needed. Thank you, Molly, for joining us here today. So, I mean, Listening to your bio, it sounds like you have just had an incredible path to leadership, all within the addiction and recovery field. Can you tell me a little bit more about your decision to work in treatment and recovery? Thanks, Susan, and thanks for having me um, today. I'd love to speak to a little bit about my decision of working in addiction treatment and my my passion, um, you know, ultimately in long-term recovery. So that speared my my journey. Um, and I was able to have a lot of experience both, both pretty much personally uh, with the addiction treatment space and kind of seeing the gaps in care and, and things that maybe I really needed as somebody who was going through my own addiction treatment process back in the early 2000s. And as I started to stay sober and realized that I was really passionate about um, helping people, I really decided that I really wanted to be an expert in the field and, and be able to understand the ways in which uh, treatment can be best provided to uh, the population that I, I work with. And primarily that's adults. So I did a lot of passion projects. I skinned my knees a bunch of different times early on in my career. I probably did things that I, I, I know I did things I, I wouldn't do today, uh, but it was all a really great learning experience. And, and then I decided after about four years of working in a nonprofit sober living where I felt really passionate about helping people. I was really, it was a day in and day out job. There was never a, a day off, never an hour off. What I really realized was that I wasn't super armed with the skill set that these clients needed. I had enough of my own journey of being somebody in long-term recovery, but I felt like I needed to kind of elevate my skill set, and which led me to kind of go back to school, um, become a certified alcohol and drug counselor, or do some additional training as a certified interventionist. 
and really start to understand that people can recover in many different ways. And although my experience can be really powerful for some, it doesn't necessarily mean my journey is going to be the, the other person's journey towards the recovery path. So that's really what led me uh, to wanting to kind of pursue a career in uh, in addiction treatment and uh, move on to finite my skill set in a more, you know, clinical uh, setting. Wow, that's really something. Um, and it's interesting, too, though, like you started off with the sober housing and now you've worked, you know, you've worked your way up uh, to being the executive director. Can you tell me a little bit more about Anovo Detox and what you do there? Uh, sure. So Anovo Detox is an inpatient um, acute care health setting, essentially. So for those that may be listening that don't understand the levels of care, detox level of care is a step below an inpatient hospitalization or psych stabilization. So we're seeing clients and patients that uh, are most acutely at risk to detox independently of um, of a healthcare provider. So Anovo came by way of inception uh, March 16th of 2020 was our open date. And I think we'll get to that a little bit later in the podcast. But through that uh, opening, what we really were gearing um, up to do with our clients was to help them understand that the disease of addiction is a clinical, medical, and psychiatric illness. And all three of those prongs need to be operating simultaneously to be able to assess, treat, and refer to the proper level of care. And so a lot of times, uh, you know, years ago, detoxes really only took place in a hospital setting. And when that was done, they were looking at one factor, which was medical. And what we know about the disease of addiction is that it affects multiple areas of the individual's life. So... Our vision for Innovo, myself and the rest of the leadership team, was we wanted to create something that was going to clinically challenge the individual, psychiatrically evaluate the individual, and medically treat the individual so that they were safe while detoxing from substances and alcohol. So we are in inpatient setting. Our clients are with us anywhere from 7 to 14 days. And they are getting services um, around the clock from both medical, clinical, and psychiatric professionals. And through that process, we are assessing what has worked for the client in the past, if they've had a period of recovery, if they've never had a period of recovery, and what it is going to be, um, what's going to be the best possible outcome for them based on their many different factors, financial insurance, social factors, work, family life, home life. How do we create the most robust aftercare plan to set them up for success? Uh, and so that's really what we what we're starting to do really from day one uh, when they admit almost uh, we're really doing that due diligence process pre-admission. So my role there is the executive director. And when people will ask me, oh, you're the director of the detox, I, I will say yes. And I really just go where the need is. Right. So if I expect that if from myself and from the staff that wherever the need is for the client experience is where I show up. So if we're short staffed in one area or if I need to run group or if I need to help admissions get on the phone with a family that's challenged and not able to get their loved one into treatment and there's barriers, I really go wherever the need is in the organization to be able to serve the client. And how many, how many clients do you have at once? Like how many beds is your facility? So operating right now, we're staffed for 26 clients. 
And where do you, I'm curious, because I know you're, you know, you're in the mid-Atlantic region. So, you know, where are you, where do you pull your clients from? Our clients come from all over. I mean, I have a, I have a reputation and a whole career that, you know, preceded me before Novo, which was up in the Northeast. So I do have some contacts and connections up in that region and families that still call on me or alumni that I worked with years ago. Uh, but I would say that right now, majority of our clients come from Maryland, D.C., Northern Virginia, New Jersey, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at large, kind of that region. I mean, we will get clients from other areas, but the bulk of our clients come uh, kind of from those three, Philadelphia being the major city, D.C., Baltimore, and the surrounding areas. It, it makes sense. All right. So you talked a little bit. I mean, we've we've heard a little bit about your growth into the leadership position that you're in now and thinking about your own experience and your own growth in leadership. I wanted to know if you had any anecdotes or advice that you might offer to someone else. Anecdotes that I would offer someone else as far as leadership. Um, you know, my the way that I grew into my leadership role was I skinned my knees. And I think I mentioned that at the beginning of the beginning of our talk. And I, when I discuss with staff, I, I orient with every single staff member that comes into the organization as an employee. And throughout that half hour or hour, um, I will talk to them about, you know, how the most important way that you're going to grow is you're going to skin your knees. And so I often share with them this story that I have early on in my career. I was working in a business development role in the in the behavioral health space. And a business development role basically means you network and you create relationships in and around the community uh, where you can hopefully build clientele uh, that can attend your facility, get the name and brand out there, and then also be able to meet other providers uh, that can serve your clients if you're not the right fit. And so I remember walking into this event, and I was very, very new. Um, I remember going to this conference, and I, I was invited to this networking dinner, and everyone would say this was like the biggest networking dinner of the year, you know, and I remember sitting in my car and becoming really tearful, like, I cannot go in there, right? I, I can't go in there. I don't know anybody. All the fear, all of the imposter syndrome, all of the, you know, just fears that come up as, as A, a woman in leadership, but B, also just being new in the space and having to create relationships with people that you don't know. And I've always been known as a social person. So this is a very vulnerable moment for me. But I remember giving a, a person um, in my network a call and they said, you're going to go in there, you're going to connect with the people that you're meant to connect with and the rest will be kind of be, you know, off to the side. And, and that's exactly what I did. And I had this really powerful experience where I was able to walk through that. And I ended up through that process then going to another networking event where a woman was sharing her career story and she was a VP in marketing and she had worked in the industry for about 20 years. And through that, I remember looking at her and saying, I want what she has, right? It kind of goes back to that old, I'm a, I'm a 12 step girl. So it kind of goes back to that old, like it, go after the people you want what they have. Right. And so I remember seeing her and and looking at her and saying, I'm going to go up to her afterwards. She doesn't know me. I'm going to introduce myself and ask her if she'll go get coffee. 
And I remember going up and she looked at me and she said, I'd love to have coffee with you, but I don't necessarily do B2B marketing anymore. And I said, I'm not here to market. I'm here to understand how you built your career. And I would love if you would mentor me. And that really set us out on a very long journey um, of mentorship. And since then, we've done presentations on how to mentor and how to be a mentee and how that relationship has evolved and grown. And she, you know, she was a clear, she was a clear perspective for me um, to help me walk through big hurdles throughout my career. Wow. That's just an amazing story. And, you know, having to get vulnerable and you know, ask for help, ask for the mentorship. You know, you said she, she had what you wanted. Um, I think the other part of that is, you know, if, you know, you find somebody who has what you want and then you do what they do. Right. So I guess over time, I imagine you have done, you know, what she's done and hopefully you've also become a mentor, correct? For other people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely have. It's been in a, a really, you know, it's really been a highlight of, of my career, right? Like how can I give, how can I be of service? Cause I think about staff and being able to show up and, you know, show up in the workplace. I let them know this is something that you're coming to earn a paycheck, but don't ever forget that the part of like the human connection and the human aspect of living in this world is being of service somehow, some way. And that that really is what I have to remind myself. I go to work and I, and I'm passionate about helping people, but I also need to find other areas that is more of a service role than, you know, what I'm doing to earn a paycheck. And that's really been the power of the mentor mentee relationship. It's something that I do for free and for fun. And it really, you know, creates a really special bond between the people that I've been able to collaborate with over the years. Well, it sounds like it. And also paying it forward. You know, we all need some of that. Um, so you talked before about, I think your official opening date was March 16th, 2020. And if I'm correct, I believe in my mind, the world shut down on March 20th, 2020. Is that right? Was it four days later? Yeah, I mean, it pretty much was like the same day. It's a little bit of a blur, but I can definitely share with you what it was like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm like, wow, talk about, a, you know, a, a, what a time to open. Although, obviously, you know, maybe that was the best time, you know, in terms of, you know, needing these services desperately. So, you know, I'd love to hear some more about, you know, what it was like working through the pandemic, you know, the beginning of the pandemic and the, and the challenges that you faced you know, as a starting organization and, you know, kind of how you made it through. Sure. Uh, so about two weeks before we opened, we had about 250 people at an open house event and there was a lot of excitement and, you know, we couldn't wait. And there were some murmurs happening in the background about COVID, right? Or I don't even know if there was a name for it yet, but there were some murmurs going on in the background but I think that we just kind of felt like, oh, this is going to pass, you know. And uh, and then as we got closer and closer to open date, I was meeting with my medical director, who now at this point I'd only worked with for about two weeks. So we be, were becoming very fast friends and colleagues. And I looked at him and I said, I've onboarded 40 full-time staff members at this location. We're seconds and inches from opening. What do we do? And and basically the question at hand was, are we going to open or are we going to lay all these people off? 
And are we going to rent, potentially rent the space to a hospital? I mean, there was a lot of talk about overflow that was going to be in hospitals. There wasn't going to be enough beds for people. And he looked at me and he just said, we're going to go to open. And I said, okay. And through that, you know, although an interesting and scary time working through a pandemic, especially in behavioral health, um, all the unknowns, we had no idea what to expect what type of symptoms our patients were going to uh, surface with, if there was going to be any sort of fatalities through this, uh, really from COVID, not necessarily detox. Obviously, detox, you have to be very careful about the medical complications that arise naturally with just coming off of substances and alcohol. But through through our journey, what we really found was that, A, the staff became inseparable <laughs> because no one had anywhere to go. So the idea of coming to work was such a, you know, bonding moment for staff. And we treated just under 600 patients in our first year. And the individuals that were coming to our center were those that we had our standard client, you know, the client that knows they need treatment and has been in treatment prior. But what we started to see was a lot of clients that started to come to treatment that normally would not have sought treatment, but because they were grounded from flying or from working or from traveling, all of a sudden their, you know, their ailments around their substance use disorder and their alcohol use disorder started to come to light and the family started to say, whoa, this is a bigger problem than we thought it was, or the individual is having that own realization. And so one of the highlights of my first year, I'll never forget, is the 88-year-old man that we treated that came in and said, I want to be sober. Um, I want to die sober. And it was, he had never sought treatment before. And it was a really, really powerful example of what happens when we slow down and we don't have all the other outside distractions and what do we really want to kind of leave our, you know, how do we want to leave a legacy, right? And for him, that meant something. And so... Uh, you know, I have plenty of stories, you know, that wow. I could talk about, but that was one of the highlights. Yeah, no, that really is something. It's never too late, right? Never too late to change your life, to get help. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because maybe it's never the best time. It's also the best time, right? Like it's, it's all yeah. these, all these things that came together during the pandemic for people to get help. So that's mm-hmm. really something. I'm sure you have a, a lot of stories. And I know for you, uh, you know, you also had additional challenges during the pandemic, um, you know, because we talked about this, um, you know, starting a family, right? So you have all this other stress going on, and I think you started your family during the pandemic. Is that right? Yeah. So my son will be two January 7th, and I got pregnant Um in the pandemic. And I wouldn't say it was in the height, height of the pandemic, but, you know, it was still restricted enough, right? No doctor's visits with another person, only one person in the birth room, you know, all of those sorts of things, masks everywhere you went. And some of the, some of the fears about working in behavioral health at large, um, you know, on an inpatient unit was there. And, you know, I guess I'll speak to like, more of the vulnerable parts of me as a female in leadership and and really not in leadership, more as like career driven was how am I going to be able to be a mom and still have my career? 
And I would say that was really something that I grappled with. So for a long time, I didn't know if those two could coexist, right? Um, I had my own fears and my own reservations. And again, I think perceptions start to change and shift when you are really hunkered down with just your core system, your family system. And uh, that happened for us naturally through the pandemic. I mean, we worked, but nobody really wanted to be around us all that much because we were around so many people in behavioral health. So it became a time to really evaluate, like, do we want to have a child? And, um, and I'm so grateful. I mean, I couldn't imagine life. I don't re- remember life before my son, uh, which I think is pretty common. And I've still learned how to show up for him and also feed my needs and uh, and the needs of the organization that I feel very passionate about, that I that I feel very committed to being both a parent and a working mom. Yeah, I mean, and so obviously, I mean, and I think anybody in a position of leadership and, you know, facing parenthood is concerned and worried about what it's going to be like. And, and you, you can't imagine it until you're in it, right? I think all the mm-hmm. fears are normal. For me, though, I know that work-life balance, you know, hasn't always been what I thought it would be. I'm curious, you know, to hear from you. You certainly have had to work on work-life balance, and then you've had this other, you know, working in the field that you're working in and, you know, being, you know, during the pandemic times, it all kind of casts this additional um, issues which we try and balance. So I'd love to hear about your thoughts on work-life balance. Yeah, so – I think that for me, work-life balance has, I don't think you can plan it. Like, you know, people are like, oh, I'm going to do like this, this day, and this, this day, and this, this day. Like, I go wherever the need is. Like, I am aware enough that if my son needs me a little bit more that week than work needs me, then that's where I show up. Or if work needs me a little bit more than my son needs me that week, that's where I show up, Right. And sometimes I have to pause and say, okay, how do I fill up to give to both, right? And so I think that's probably been one of the catalysts for me is that over the last uh, seven years, I have been working um, with an intimate group, a group of women um, who the group started out as like women in leadership. And that's how I was recruited to kind of be in this group. And through that process, I've really done like a lot of my own healing and a lot of my own discovery and a lot of my own uh, challenged myself and and the group has challenged me on kind of different, you know, different facets of my life. And I think it's really gotten me in tune with being aware of where my life needs me at any given time, right? I think a lot of people put pressure on themselves, especially in the workforce today, I see it a lot where I'll have staff that are so hyper-focused on work-life balance that it almost becomes more of a stressful, like, algorithm than it is a benefit for them. And so I've really just tried to kind of live by this this new mantra that was brought up by my facilitator last year. And she said, she said, you know, my new mantra is if it's not a full body, yes, then it's a no. And for me, that makes sense because I have always been somebody that if I don't want to do something, I'm not going to do it. Right. Like I 
feel very passionate about a lot of areas of my life. And so for me, it's easy to show up in those spaces. I don't do a lot of things that I don't want to do. My husband can probably attest to that more so than anybody. Um, but I use it as a barometer, right? And it's not that I don't ever do something I don't want to do, right? Like, you know, I don't love to go to the grocery store, but I'm going to go to the grocery store because we all need to eat. But it's the idea of where I'm dedicating my time and space. Um, and it's really been, you know, it's been a, it's been a nice shift, I think, over the last 12 months. I'm due to meet with my group in February. So it's always a good check in to kind of see how that, how the year's gone and what's shifted and evolved. Yeah, you'll have to report in. So I'm going to repeat that because I actually think it's really good. So, and I can picture it kind of with an expletive. And maybe since this is a professional podcast, you didn't use that. <laughs> so if it's not, we'll say, if it's not a full body yes, insert expletive there, it's a no. Yeah. And yeah. That, yeah, that's great. You know, and, and I think for me as a busy person, as a busy woman, there's always a million demands on my time, you know, in, in which I'm getting, you know, asked to, um, I mean, I have my clients, I have my kids, I have my extended family, I have, you know, things that I'm interested in outside of work. But I know recently, like, I got a call like, hey, you know, can you sit on this committee? Can you do this thing? And I, I had to kind of say, no, I, I can't, mm-hmm. you know, because I couldn't have, give that full body yes. And so we're being true to ourselves. And I think of service to others because, you know, you give too much away, you know, you're too... um you know, you're all over the place. You're not of service to anyone. So, all right. Yeah, and I think that kind of goes, no. yeah, if it's a full body, yeah, if it's not a full body, yes, it's a no. And kind of going back to the previous, you know, topic about, you know, motherhood and like that changing me as well. You know, there's a lot of demands on a new mom, right? Like where she should spend her time frequently. She should be seeing her her parents or her in-laws or you know the aunt aunt nancy or what whoever it is right there's all these demands and so i'm going to do what's in the best interest of my child and i'm also going to do what's in the best interest of our family system you know and i think a lot of people get lost in that and, and they don't know how to differentiate but that has also changed me not only in motherhood, but also in my work life too, you know, like how was I able to ease up? How was I able to delegate? How was I able to say, oh, what is important to the organization right now? What does, what does the organization need from me versus how can my managers and my directors also manage some of the day to day that I don't necessarily need to be everywhere for everyone. Right. And that wasn't always the case, but you know, I was kind of forced into that. I started doing a work from home to do that, you know, like little things that started to shift where I started to realize the shift needs to learn how to sail. So without me, right. Like they need to feel empowered and confident in their skill set. And then I'm there to help steer and navigate but I don't need to be kind of holding onto the wheel 24-7, if that makes sense. Oh, no, for sure. It really does. I mean, I think that a good leader is a leader who can delegate and let go and and be there for, you know, your team, you know, and meet your team where they're at. Like you said, help them steer and be there for them. But we can't, we can't do everything and we can't be everything to everyone. So, so one thing that we like to um, ask everyone who comes on our Think Factory podcast is what keeps you up at night? 
You know, when we did our due diligence call, I've been thinking about this because I feel like what keeps me up at night has changed and evolved. What kept me up at night when I first opened uh, Anovo was the fear of crisis with a patient. Um, you're dealing with such an acute population. And I felt fully confident in the safety of the, of the patient in our care, but there are things that are out of our control. Um, medical complications, acute intoxication, overdose, et cetera. Um, so that kept me up a lot in the first, you know, year of being open. And as my system started to regulate naturally in the setting, um, I realized, you know, we're, we're providing the most high quality of care and I'm still not going to be able to control every outcome. And I've, and I found some solace in that. And I was also kind of, I, I would lean into my medical director quite a bit. I mean, he's worked in this, in the field for 30 years and he deals with a much more acute population, even outside of ANOVO, uh, from mental, mental health complexities and those that, um, that those that go to state hospital in the state of Pennsylvania. And so through that, he really coached me and, and, you know, allowed me to be vulnerable where I would, you know, text him or call him at night and say, I'm worried about this client and this is why. And he would walk me through it. And he would also reiterate, you know, we have a very competent team and they're going to do everything they can to protect the patient, you know, and it's the same thing in a hospital setting, right? Like you do the best you can with what you have. So that would keep me up at night um, quite a bit. Nowadays, um, you know, I would say just, am I giving my time to the right space, right? necessarily a nagging where I'm thinking, you know, I, it, it's a, it's not an obsession. It's more so a reflection before going to bed at night. How am I reflecting and saying, where did I spend my time? And, and maybe where does my time and space need to shift at any given, you know, at any given moment to be directed somewhere else? And I also think that my creative ideas lately have also kept me up a little bit at night, you know, like Novo is such a passion of mine. And I want to also teach and, you know, help other teams learn, you know, and so I don't know, I think 2024 is going to be filled with some new opportunities uh, to be able to try out some new things that I've been kind of brainstorming and thinking about over this past year. That sounds exciting. Um, so if uh, one of our listeners wants to reach out to you, what's the best way uh, for them to find you? So you can find us at anovodetox.com, and that's I-N-N-O-V-O-Detox.com. And then through that, you can also email me, um, mashcroft at anovodetox.com. And anyone who is wanting to hear more, learn more, or also needs help for a loved one, you know, I'm assuming that we may hear some folks that, you know, this is a vulnerable time for them or their families. And are scared to talk about it or scared to ask for help, know that our team is on standby at any given time. Um, and I'm happy to talk with any family myself too, you know, to give guidance and direction and hopefully some hope that life can be a little bit different when the substances and alcohol are removed from the equation. Yeah. Thank you for that. And, uh, you know, just in terms of stigma, it can affect anybody, right? Like any socioeconomic, it doesn't matter what's going on or how much money you have or what you do. Addiction is everywhere and it's important to reach out and ask for help. So I appreciate the fact that you would be there for anybody that hears that and your team. 
So thank you for your service. I want to thank you for your time today, and I'm going to encourage our listeners to be sure to check out the other Women's Roundtable podcasts so you can learn more about how women think big and grow their business. Thanks so much, Molly, for being a part of this today. Thanks, Susan. Have a great day.